This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and The Future for Investors. Also joining us for our discussion today is Jeff Winninger, who's the Director of Asset Allocation at Wisdom Tree. Please note, Jeff and I are rich representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Professor Siegel, wow, we're going to have a really interesting conversation today. Uh, we've got uh, a, a, a discussion focused on the election. You got some interesting market rotation happening. Uh, is this the big tech to value trade in the last few days? What's your sense of what's right. going on? Oh, wow. Uh, so many things to talk about. Um, uh, let me just mention, uh, of course, the employment report. Uh, it was a very good report. Uh, the, the, it, it really, what came out, remember there's two surveys. There's the firm survey which came out pretty much as expected. And then there's the um, household survey, which was much better than expected, and unemployment rate down 8.4. Wow. I mean, this was the second biggest drop in unemployment rate, I think, in history. Um, uh, a lot of sell. And, and, and now what's the big difference? One is payrolls for firms. The other includes, it's payroll for firms and includes self-employed people. There's a lot of self-employed people um, are now back to work <laughs> um, that are not, not part of a payroll. Uh, so that went up uh, almost $3 million. I mean, that was, that was, that was, certainly, uh, that was certainly huge. Um, and, uh, again, I, I emphasize that all the data is backward-looking. This was for the first couple of weeks. Of, of August, uh, people were still getting, you know, the, the the supplements on their unemployment insurance that has run out. So the you know there's there is concern about you know what will the uh, September job was bringing them. I mean I, that we definitely need to look at that. But this was this was a strong report. We see it a lot in the bond market today. Uh, yields are up. The ten year is uh, you know nearly seventy basis points. Still very very low, but um, has 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 moved up. Now we have this huge rotation on stocks. Is this the real thing? How many times have we said this is the real thing in the past? And it was not the real thing. In the, and I say the real thing, I mean a, a, a true rotation to value from growth. Let's, let's step back and first say clearly the tech um, and the, the, the tech that benefits from the pandemic market just attracted a huge number of uh, trend followers. Uh, it was wild. I mean, stocks going up 10, 20 percent per day, um, a runaway. This is a very healthy shakeout. On NASDAQ, we're down almost from intraday high to intraday low this morning, and they might have more to roll, 10%. My God, this is I think this is the biggest, fastest correction we've ever had for a major average coming from a new high. Of course, we um, many of things are breaking records. I mean, this was the biggest recovery from a bear market by the S&P 500 in its entire history. So, I mean, we got a lot of things that were going on. But I, I, I regard this as a healthy... Um, uh, 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 shakeout. Uh, it's just uh, and 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 something that you knew was going to happen. You didn't know when. It could have gone another five, ten percent on the upside, fifteen percent, and then bang. Um, uh, and uh, it happened. Uh, 
Well, now, in terms of shifting from growth to value, that really does require a reopening of the economy. It requires a drop in virus cases and the development of therapeutics and vaccines, both of which we are seeing. Virus cases are down. Certainly in the Southwest, it has peaked in all the four states that had those problems, Arizona, California, um, um, Florida, and Texas, um, and uh, basically going down. Um, I mean, our yearly rates are, I mean, our daily death rates are still too high at 900, but they were 1,200 two weeks ago. So, you know, we are down. I, now, vaccines, a lot of news. When are they going to be approved? Uh, you know, are they being rushed? There are political questions about, uh, about this. Um, uh, we've got two months to the election. Um, my feeling is, as you know, I've been, um, one of the people that believe that we will have conditional approvals on vaccines. I at first said by the end of the year, which was way out of a consensus. Uh, now it's now, is it going to be by November 1st, uh, you know, two days before the election? Um, uh, I don't know whether it'll be that way or not. Uh, they will, of course, uh, they're taking the trials now. If, if there is great efficacy, they will break into the trials and announce that they, you know, will do conditional um, approvals. Uh, this is the standard procedure. We don't know whether that's going to happen next eight weeks, but it very well could happen. I think things will, will happen. Um, and that, of course, brings us to the election. <laughs> uh, clearly a drop in cases. The approval of vaccines, whether believed or not, is a favorable trend towards Trump. Uh, however, in the very latest polls on betting markets, after getting a bump from the uh, uh, RCP, Republican Convention, um, uh, Trump has settled back a little bit. Um, uh, it's now in the neighborhoods of being, you know, 60, 40, 58, 42. Um, he, he needs to take Wisconsin. That's the, the, that's the key state. That will the disturbances in Kenosha bring him over the top? He needs to take Florida. He needs to take Arizona. He needs to take North Carolina. All those are, the latter three are related as toss-ups. So, you know, there's still progress that he has to make um, if he's going to take the election. On the Senate front, if we were to hold the election today, my feeling would be 50-50, um, which means, of course, the presidency will determine the Senate. The close race there where the Republicans have a chance of holding 51-49, I believe, uh, is North Carolina, Tillis against Cunningham. And uh, in Tillis and Cunningham, uh, the Monmouth poll that just came out, showed um, Cunningham by only two points, which is much narrower than before. Uh, in the betting markets, it's almost two to one for Cunningham uh, against Tim, uh, Tillis, an incumbent Republican. Um, if uh, the incumbent can retain uh, his uh, position and there's no other surprising flips, then it looks like a 51-49. But that's you know, that would require a comeback, at least in the betting polls and in the actual uh, polls on the Senate. So, you know, we'll be watching that uh, very, very uh, closely um, going um, going forward. Let, let me uh, remind our listeners, we've been doing a new feature. You can email in some questions to ask Siegel. S-I-E-G-E-L at wisdomtree.com. And we've had a few questions, Professor, this week on the elections. One, you know, you just talked about the betting markets and somebody actually wrote in about this and they asked, you talk about them a lot. What is the evidence? They're predictive. Uh, they didn't predict Biden's nomination the week before it happens and it didn't really see Trump in 2016. How do you, how do you think about using right. these? Right. It's uh, a good point. Now, actually, they did towards, they did move towards Trump quickly when they when they saw after the South Carolina result it did it really did look uh, like Bernie Sanders was going to sweep and, and and you know he was he was ahead 
Um, but they very quickly turned right after South Carolina and then predicted very, very well in, in, in all those states. Uh, yeah, everyone got it wrong in um, 2016. Not everybody. I mean, there were people predicting Trump. However, the betting markets um, didn't get it as wrong as many of the pollsters who, you know, regarded Clinton win as something that was 5 to 1, 10 to 1 as a probability, or New York Times, I think, came out with like a 25 to 1 or something like that. I mean, they were, they were reflecting pretty well what, what Nate Silver said, which was basically a, uh, basically a 3 to 1 uh, and 2 and a half to 1. Um, I, uh, they were very accurate in the uh, 2018 uh, congressional uh, election, both on the Senate and on, on who would win. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, and, and if you want to know the truth, I think predicted.org is a leader. Uh, I, you know, you look at where serious money can be bet in England on political elections. They do follow predicted.com. It's almost like they're looking at predicted.com and setting Betfair and some of the others that bet, that bet there. So I think, uh, honestly, I, I think they're reflecting things very well. Not perfectly. There's always going to be surprises. Um, but uh, I, 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 I mean, certainly they lead the polls. Um, uh, they're affected by the polls, but they actually lead the polls. They have se- sentiment and what, what, what becomes important. I mean, they showed the tightening of the race between Biden and Trump before the polls showed that tightening. Um, uh, although some of the very latest polls have showed that Biden has regained six to eight points. There's others that have showed less. But uh, the, and, and, and you have seen a little bit of a pushback then on, on those polls. But they're, they're the best things we have. They're sensitive. They're, they're, they're bet by people. Now, one thing people should remember about the predicted.org polls, um, they, and I think this is a good feature, they limit the amount you can bet on any contract. So you can't have someone, you know, some you know, millionaire, multimillionaire, you know, buy thousands of contracts and move the contract. He or she is always limited, and so that it, it does represent a more broad-based with preventing manipulation by people with a lot of of, uh, of money. Right, and I've, as long as I've known you, and as long as uh, they, there's been these markets, you're a market person. I've seen you following them probably for 20 years now, almost. So I know you've been uh, been watching them. Right. I mean, before for, predicted that hour, we had in trade, as yeah. many of people realize, um, and uh, in trade uh, discontinued and. The U.S. government allowed predicted, which is out of New Zealand, uh, to do political markets. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I think it's uh, served a very important uh, service. Another question on the election. Uh, somebody wrote in, you know, asking if it's smart to take some chips off the table ahead of the election. They, they heard you say no. If Biden wins, you get higher taxes, regulation. But he's also worried about a Trump win. Uh, and they, you know, they think there could be mm-hmm. sort of rioting, looting. They, yeah. they worry about TV. They sort of talked about an allusion to the 60s. Uh, and they said, was that a, a great time, not a great time to be in the markets? And is there any parallels there? Yeah, I mean that that it's an interesting point. I mean, uh, you know, what will happen? I mean, is and and you do worry about with the mail wins and and and, and that it's not going to be decided on November 3rd. Um although, you know, very 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 honestly, um there's only a couple of states that that could be key. Um I mean, um I mean, for instance, if 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 Wisconsin looks like it's going for Biden um, and there's no other big disturbance, then, you know, then basically you, I don't need, you don't need counts anywhere else. Uh, I think Wisconsin is the one he has to take. So you really only have to follow one or two in terms of what kind of lag. Now, again, the Tillis Cunningham, uh, you know, if it's going to be very, very close, ballots are going to be counted, and that, that could determine the Senate, which is really still important you are you're right i sometimes thought you know if if trump wins could there be more disturbances and then you get a a very fractured and unhappy uh situation and um uh, biden is viewed more as a healer um but we don't but the market doesn't like his taxes Uh, one of the things my feeling is and I'll, i'll repeat that that um, 
Uh, I mean, I think the, in many ways, the Mark would say, I'll go for a Biden presidency if the Senate will have 51-42. 50-50, as long as he doesn't push too hard on too big taxes, 50-50 remains. Remember, he has to satisfy every single Democrat with this huge tax increase, maybe modified. All he needs, you know, 51-49, if he gets that then one can go out. Remember, McCain going out from the Republicans was a very key to preventing the repeal of Obamacare. So one person is really important as far as I'm concerned. Let me say the following, though. Um, my feeling is that um, that a Biden presidency, even with a Biden Senate, the, that uncertainty out of the way, um, and the spending that the Dems are going to push onto the economy will still be positive for stocks. Let me mention one other, and this is really important, <clears throat> one a very important economic piece of data we got, and no one talked about it, productivity for the second quarter was revised upward to over 10%, the largest in 50 years the largest jump in productivity on a quarterly basis in 50 years. I've been saying on this show that what's going to buoy corporate profits through the end of this year and particularly in 2021 is firms are getting rid of people and adopting procedures that are going to cut costs that are going to boost profits. Um, and that is, and with that productivity, you're beginning to see that we could have a productivity boom in 2021 that we have not seen for years. This is going to be good for stocks, no matter who is elected president. Well, on that note, Professor, thanks for your thoughts for this week, and uh, have a great holiday weekend. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you soon. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I'm going to bring in our guests. Uh, we're going to have Jeff Winger from Wisdom Tree and, and Helmut Norpoth, who's a political profe- a professor of political science at Stony Brook University. He's been working on election-focused forecast models for the U.S., Germany, the U.K. Professor, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you for having me. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about your background, how you came to forecasting models, and just a little bit about your research to give people a sense of, of your training and background and, and, and your specialty. Well, as part of my, uh, my training in political science, uh, my, <clears throat> I've studied elections, voting pretty much all my, all my life as a student and, uh, and, uh, and teacher. And in particular, I, uh, I uh, was always intrigued with presidential primaries, which I cover, and uh, in, on the statistical side, I, I developed a certain expertise in uh, what is called time series analysis, which allows you to sort of track things over time and uh, uh, arrive at certain conclusions about what, what happens if you do that. And uh, so putting it together, uh, <clears throat> over 100 years of uh, presidential primaries, uh, I have distilled that experience into a very simple lesson, and that is the party that nominates the candidate with the better primary performance goes on to win in November. It seems to be a very simple, uh, simple rule that uh, maybe it's amazing that uh, nobody else has ever sort of sort of come up with that. And uh, on top of that, uh, another thing that you can actually track for even longer, almost 200 years since we had presidential elections, uh, which I'm sure most people uh, sort of have seen at one point or another, is that a first-term president has a very distinct advantage. That is, you have a leg up no matter what, uh, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, uh, whether you're Trump or Obama or Bush, etc. In that situation, you have an advantage. And if on top of that, you deliver a very strong performance in the primary, presidential primaries, and uh, the other, uh, the opponent does not, uh, you have a pretty high chance of winning winning the election in November. That's interesting. You know, Professor Siegel earlier said not many people predicted Trump, but your model did predict Trump in 2016. So it's uh, it's fascinating how how your simple work came to that. It, when you think about the reasons for this model working, is it 
is it because you think there's more when you have a more heated contestant when it's not like the incumbent party like so Trump really didn't have real challengers and so people on, in his own party aren't really attacking him is it that there's this more heated contest when they're they're not in par- in in power well i think first of all i mean a uh a primary is a real election. It's not a uh, it's not a poll. It's not something hypothetical. It is a it is a something like a campaign with all the bells and whistles. You have to prove yourself, and uh, I think it tells us a lot how voters are sizing up these candidates. Not just in the primary, but probably later on. In particular, in a primary that I pay a lot of attention to, which is New Hampshire, uh, which is a primary in which draws a lot of voters. Uh, turnout is very high, almost like a general election. And uh, it is pretty much open. You don't have to be a partisan to participate in a primary in New Hampshire. And uh, oftentimes uh, the people who are not affiliated with a party are about half of the electorate. And so you get surprises where people like McCain uh, does very well in uh, New Hampshire based on, based on that appeal. And uh, it also sometimes puts sitting presidents to a, to a test. It's not just that uh, a sitting president uh, sort of has a free ride. And if you remember a few uh, in, in recent memory, like uh, even George H.W. Bush, the elder Bush, uh, faced a very strong challenge from Pat Buchanan in New Hampshire. And uh, that was a sort of a bad omen for what was, what was going to happen down the line, or Jimmy Carter in 19, 1980 against uh, Teddy Kennedy. And, and so it's not, it's not a, a foregone conclusion that a, a sitting president has an easy time with the primaries, and, and, and if that, that sitting president has a challenge, that often tells you that something bad is going to happen in November. Professor Norfolk, this is this is Jeff Leninger. It, it, it's funny you mentioned the, the Buchanan coming in. I, I believe that's a reference to 1992, if I'm not mistaken. And so the the wild card there was that Ross Perot threw a uh, <laughs> a wrench into the system in that particular year, potentially taking votes from Bush um, and and leading to the Clinton victory. It, so is it, it it's it's almost a, a can I just respond to that? Can I just respond to that? Uh, yeah. Well, because Ross Perot was not a was not a uh, candidate in primaries, and uh, from what we know, I mean, these are these are things that are very difficult to determine. Uh, Ross Perot did not deprive uh, the elder Bush of, of victory in in the end. If you look at the uh, the exit polls and and another polling that was done about the Perot vote, uh, it's it's a pretty uh, even split, and of course, a lot of people wouldn't even have voted. I mean, that's that's always the thing that people have to have to realize. A third-party candidate often sort of brings his own troops to the battle, and without that candidate, they just wouldn't wouldn't vote. And those those that did, it was pretty much an even split bit between uh, between Clinton and Bush. So, the idea that that it was Ross Perot, all Ross Perot, I I uh, I don't buy. <laughs> Let me ask a, a quick follow-up, because one of the things that's interesting, we, we love when people make bold forecasts, is if I'm not mistaken, you, you have a 91% probability of a, a Trump re-election. Yes. Pretty much everything else is on the other side of that trade, right? Uh, everything from 538 to, to predicted markets and so on. So is there um, any view in your own mind or in your own gut with respect to all the other things that are going on? Is anything different this time around with coronavirus or... Um, well, I would say, I mean, but, 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 but it gives me a good deal of confidence that all these people, like you mentioned, 538, and I mean, yeah. about a dozen others that, that do similar things, uh, mostly on, based on polls and poll aggregation. I mean, they were all wrong in 2016. They were all wrong, including the betting market in England. I mean, somebody won a million plus uh, based on three to one odds against Trump. Uh, I, I, I think we've, we've seen this movie before. I think there's something wrong with the polls. And in particular, polls have a problem with Trump. There's something about him that they don't get a handle on. And, uh, so I'm, 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 uh, I'm not worried about the polls. I mean, after, after 2016, I'm, uh, I, I see the same picture, uh, developing and, uh, uh, I, I'm not sure whether they have learned enough, whether they have made enough adjustments to uh, the polling. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, the other thing is, I mean, that, that people also forget. One other thing I'd like to throw in, uh, Gallup, which 
a lot of people, I mean, for, I mean, we still consider Gallup sort of the gold standard of, of uh, polling, the inventor essentially of, of sort of modern scientific polling, and done it since 1936. And uh, people forget that uh, after, the ninth, after the 2012 election, Gallup quit. If you look at any of these uh, uh, poll uh, results, like on Real Clear Politics or, or 538, you don't see Gallup anymore. Gallup is not doing this kind of polling anymore. And he quit after 2012 when he predicted that, well, we would get President Romney. And uh, he tried to, figure, they tried to figure out things after that, uh, fix the problem, getting it right, and ultimately decided, I think, to throw up their hands and said, we, 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 we can't do it. And uh, they left the business. We were talking to Helmut Norpoth, the professor at Stony Brook University, about his interesting primary model for determining election outcomes. Uh, professor, is you want to talk about any places where the model is broken down and any views on, on what caused it to break down or any explanations of those years? And then maybe we could talk about also outside of the U.S., how, how is this applied? And, uh mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. The, uh, I mean, I, I, I have two misses. Uh, in retrospect, I mean, I, I wasn't around. I was too young to make the forecast in, in, uh, in 1960. Uh, when I was 16 years old, Kennedy really was a big big star in my life. And so it hurts me that I predict that, that he would have lost that, 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 uh, that election. Uh, the one thing that, uh, that I could maybe learn as a note of caution from that is that what I... I believe, and I think a lot of people believe, is that uh, the debates in 1960 uh, won it for Kennedy and that, that Nixon lost. Nixon lost the debate. I don't think anybody disputes that, and that it cost him the election. And so you have uh, sort of a, an October surprise that uh, happened in September and October that, 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 that year that, uh, that did change the, the dynamic of the race. And, of course, we had, uh, I mean, I mean, three or four big October surprises this year in March and April and May, and I mean, I mean, they're still they're still going on, and uh, so yes, uh, I don't have a handle on that. I mean, uh, the model per se uh, doesn't give me a handle. The only handle I could have, uh, I uh, I might have been able to use if uh, some of the later primaries. I mean, there were still primaries and. Uh, I guess May and maybe even June, et cetera, uh, had shown a collapse uh, for Trump. I mean, if suddenly people had turned 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 away from him, uh, technically that probably would have been the only way I could have sort of finagled an adjustment, a correction. But uh, it didn't happen. I mean, Trump. Uh, I mean, always has 90 percent plus <clears throat> votes in in these uh, in these primaries, and uh, so. Uh, even if I thought right now that maybe uh, things are swimming away, I uh, I uh, I couldn't do very much about it. Is it also work when you go down to be beyond the, the sort of presidential party? Is there anything uh, you're seeing in like Wisconsin that would, if Professor Siegel talked about that being like the key state this year? Any other things that you would focus on uh, in sort of key states or, or any signals you're seeing for for uh, some of the other elections? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I mean it, um, I'm prepared uh, to see if, if Trump, let's say, wins the electoral college vote, which is what I, I'm predicting this time because of the, the mismatch uh, 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 last time. So, yes, clearly, uh, if, if Trump, uh, let's say, uh, it looks like well, we don't know that. I mean, the polls, I'm skeptical. But if he were to lose Wisconsin uh, and would not gain any other states, and also. Maybe Pennsylvania, where Biden seems to have a very strong historical connection, then I would I would say uh, I may be in for uh, for for, uh, for a miss. So I'm I'm clearly paying paying very close attention to to those states and some other battleground states, which uh, which Trump won uh, last time, and uh, that he would would absolutely have to uh, have to keep. Uh, you can't afford to lose any of those. Very good. Um, for for your model, would you would you say you know you, you, we talked about these are some betting sites where you could say you could put some money to work. Would you say your ninety one percent odds are suggesting you're going to place your money along that model? Well, I placed uh, some I placed money in predicted, which I I, I heard referred to uh, with your previous guest. Uh, the only sort of legal betting site in this country. 
limited limited amounts, of course. So I yep. have uh, I have bought a uh, uh, thousand shares for for Trump. I think they were trading at about I don't know forty cents when I when, when I when I when I did. So um, I would make some money, and I I, I watch them, and I, I see that Biden is clearly favored. Uh, I don't know fifty six or what right now. So so that I've seen switch too. I mean, at, at one point Trump was was ahead now he's behind but it's it's changing and uh i'm 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 not sure uh what some of the people who are betting in markets like like that can actually use beyond uh, the polls i mean i don't know whether they have their own models that they that uh, that they develop and then like me i mean what would come up with uh, with uh, something, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I I put my money where my mouth is, and so I I uh, well, that's good. I take my lumps if it doesn't work. No, I think that's a good uh, it's a good test of your uh, your conviction. So well, I appreciate you sharing. This has been a very interesting conversation for a lot of people. There hasn't been a lot of people on your side of this prediction. So well, hardly anybody. <laughs> right. I, I haven't heard of anybody else. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, even more than that 2016. Right. I mean, that's what, one of the things why we want to have this conversation is we haven't found anybody else in the, on that side of the ledger. So thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets today. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. It's a, it's a great pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We continue discussion of the election. And we're talking with Ed Klitzold, who's the chief U.S. strategist for Ned Davis Research, produced a great uh, election-focused playbook, how different markets have performed, following sort of all the different election cycles. Ed, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Great to be here. We're, you know, we are having an election-focused show. Uh, the first half we talked with a Stony Brook professor, Helmut Norpoth, who is maybe the only person that Jeff and I are following who is predicting a Trump victory with like a 91% probability. Um, so it's sort of interesting to get his, his take. Uh, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about Ned Davis Research. And I know you put out a big election roadmap, and so we want to drill into how you guys are looking at the world today in, in context of the elections. Yeah, so a quick uh, NDR spiel. Uh, We're really known for providing macro quantitative research for the street. We have probably the most extensive database, uh, over 10 million data files in our system. So the kind of research we provide is really a big historical perspective. And that's what our election report was about, was going back to 1900, dissecting the different kind of environments for elections and seeing which ones are closest to what we're seeing in 2020. And, and as you guys handicap uh, where to be putting money to work, how, how are you thinking about navigating the current market environment, most importantly top down, and then as, as we get closer to the, the election, we can start talking through your different views? Yeah, so um, how we're looking at the current environment is pretty much it's an, it's an early cyclical bull market. And the average bull market um, at follows recession lasts about a year and a half. So we certainly have had a a huge rally, the biggest rally ever, the quickest rebound from a 30% decline ever in the S&P 500. So is the market a little ahead of itself here? Certainly it is. And um, the way we think about the election is that the market doesn't like uncertainty. And political uncertainty is one of those things. And so given where we are, does the market need to cool off or could it cool off a little bit with uh, with some news flow that could generate a correction uh, going into the election, especially if the race tightens up and, and people don't know what things are going to look like come November 4th? That's quite possible. Now, hey, one, of the, go ahead, go ahead, I, I one of the questions I have is in terms of volatility. Look, I mean, we've had two sessions here where if you were listening to what Professor Siegel was saying at the beginning, I mean, the NASDAQ has just totally turned into – uh, a, a real question mark. Literally in two sessions, um, the fangs are, the, the proverbial fangs are up against the ropes. And here we have this 50-50 election, if you believe it's 50-50. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I certainly do. I, I kind of, I'm kind of with Norpoth on this one. I, I think Trump is going to win. Um, but we also have the Senate, too. The Senate is another coin toss. So could we be looking at a situation where we're experiencing considerable fall in the lead up in October and or into the first couple of weeks of November, if, especially if, the, if the, um, the jury is out on who our actual victor is. Yeah, so I know we want to keep this you know, focus on, on the election, but you know, the, the top five stocks in the S&P 500, which are 
you know, related to those FANG names um, accounted for the other day about 24 percent of the, of the index. And going back to 1972, that's the highest percentage ever. Um, so did these names get get ahead of themselves? Yes. And I think this is related to the election is that in a covid economy, you want companies that can have great balance sheets that are in, um, you know, that, that can still earn money and grow their profits um, when parts of the economy are closed. And these stocks fit that bill early in a bull market as the economy is is getting going again. Those are not the kind of stocks that typically do well. Usually it's the stocks that are really beaten up, the super cyclical names. They're the ones that do well. And so if if the economy does start to reopen or we get a really good visibility on a vaccine, you could get a rotation out of some of these names. And there's lots of reasons for what's going on the last couple of days. The option activity was really crazy the last week. That could be unwinding. So that's all coming into play. But I think as we get closer to the election, I think you're right that the Senate is, is a key part to this. When we, get, when we get questions from our clients about a Biden win, it's not necessarily about Biden himself. It's what if there's a Democratic clean sweep? And and then you could have higher taxes. What does that mean? Um, and I think there's some concern over maybe a, a really progressive agenda uh, reversing some of of uh, the Trump tax cuts. We did look at just this is just corporate tax cuts. And there's lots more to, to tax policy. But we looked at corporate tax cuts that Trump uh, put through in 2018. Um, and they pushed the, um, the corporate rate from 35 to 21 percent. Um, and Biden has proposed reversing half of that. Um, but the effective tax rate actually fell a lot less. That's what actually companies actually pay because, you know, most companies don't, don't pay 30, they didn't pay 35%. They don't pay 21% now. Um, it, it went from about, you know, it went, um, from about 23 to 17 and a half. So reverse half of that tax cut and the effective rate, it's about a 4% hit to earnings. So I think that so you probably think four to ten percent if you get a corporate tax hike uh, that that could be impacted to S and P five hundred earnings. Again, that's if you get a, a Democratic clean sweep and they're able to push something through. Um, a lot of ifs in that statement. What's interesting, Ed? I mean, I think one of the sectors that's in focus beyond just the recent turmoil in tech and and the sort of being the work from home and 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 all that you know one of the things that the reason why that effective tax rate is so low is you have all these these tech companies actually not paying taxes they go overseas you know microsoft supposedly has like a branch in puerto rico that they don't pay any taxes on um and you know, Trump was actually trying to do this border adjustment tax that would actually get higher taxes to some of these tech companies, and it didn't didn't go through. We got a lot of pushback. But the thing we heard from Biden is that he there's some minimum taxes, maybe to things like Amazon, who also doesn't pay much taxes. Is is that one of the things that you think could cause some rotation, maybe, and that maybe the effective tax rate actually goes up more because guys who haven't been paying tax finally have to. Yeah, well, I think this gets to fear versus reality. And, you know, in looking at historically what's happened versus maybe what's going on in 2020, historically, the sector that is the favorite punching bag is healthcare. Uh, both parties, uh, for different reasons, have, have attacked uh, healthcare companies. Um, healthcare has been the most consistent underperformer six months to be leading up to the election, but it's the most consistent outperformer in, in the six months after the election because usually the bark is worse than the bite. And in fact, even a um, Obamacare um, was actually good for the healthcare sector, profit-wise, but um, but in 2020, it it seems that uh, the tech sector is at least on par, if not becoming the the favorite uh, target for both parties. And so that is a possibility that uh, that could be one of the catalysts for for tech to pull back. Um, and it could be a case where it doesn't matter who wins. In fact, tech historically has been one of the weaker sectors after the election anyway. So, yeah, that, that's something to keep in mind. Again, I think there's lots of other things that are going to go into tech performance than, than just the election, of course. But, um, but you know, going after the, 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 the oligopolic behavior of some of these tech companies would probably be um, you know, something either president could, could target after the election. 
And one of the things that's been just one contradiction after the next with this presidency is you have Mr. King Dollar, Larry Kudlow over there advising Trump. And I mean, remember watching Kudlow and Kramer all those years. King Dollar, King Dollar. And then suddenly we had this, quote unquote, weak dollar president who a month or two ago was talking about we need a strong dollar. And so there's all this back and forth, mixed messages from the Trump administration. And the million dollar question from an asset allocation perspective or a portfolio management question is, which one of these two guys is the strong dollar candidate between Biden and Trump? So if it's a Biden victory, am I on strong dollar or am I on weak dollar? And then what do I do for the Trump Trump victory? Yeah, I, I think the question about the dollar, remember, the dollar is relative to other currencies, you know, unlike other asset classes. And um, as long as the U.S. economy is uh, is stronger than the rest of the world, um, and if you compare it to other major central banks, we're really talking about the European Central Bank um, and the Bank of Japan, and to some extent the Bank of England. Um, you know, if if the uh, Federal Reserve is, is on stronger standing globally, you know, that, those things are all going to be positive for the dollar. So I think that's what we need to, to focus on. Um, and uh, I, I do think that uh, Trump is very focused on trade. And one way to work on a trade deficit or to narrow a trade deficit is through um, a weaker dollar. Now, whether or not that actually comes to fruition is a different thing, but it's quite possible that uh, President Trump maybe would be more laser focused on the exchange rate uh, than Biden would be. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Ed Klitzold, who's the chief U.S. strategist for Ned Davis Research, produced a great uh, election-focused playbook, how different markets have performed, following sort of all the different election cycles. Um, and, and I think, you know, Ed, one of the things that people struggle with, you know, it's been not just a tech-driven market, it's and, and sort of piggybacking a little bit off of Jeff's question, you know, it's been a U.S.-dominated the rest of the world market. And do you think if, if we do get some of these... The, the, the Democrats come in, bring some of the the Democrat sweep with Biden and, and the and the Senate. Do you think that does lead to some allocations away from the U.S.? We get higher taxes and make some of the other markets you know, a little bit more generally uh, better. Yeah, I think we take a step back and talk about economic growth. Um, and the reason the U.S. has outperformed over the past decade is, number one, the U.S. economy had, has been stronger. And then, number two, globally, it's been a weak economic expansion. Um, the, the U.S. was the longest expansion on record, but it was also the shallowest in terms of the average rate of growth. That was still better than the rest of the world. So if you have a slow-growth global economy, investors are going to gravitate to what kind of stocks? The stocks that will give you the growth, they don't need the economy to do well. So you don't want that cyclical company. You want that stable grower. Those are tech stocks. And then if you look globally at different sector weights in different countries, the U.S. dominates the tech sector. So if you go to, if you go to Europe, there are hardly any global tech companies, same um, in, in much of Asia, those certain parts of Asia do have some, but so that's the big question is, are you going to get a global economic shift to faster growth overall and then a different kind of growth? And whether that happens, you know, that's going to be the determinant of U.S. outperformance. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not sure a, a little bit of a higher tax rate is going to make a huge difference in, in that regard. Um, I think the global economic picture is probably going to be a bigger deal. Ed, when we when we entered this year, before any of us had ever heard of COVID nineteen, it was all about the Strait of Hormuz and and energy prices, whether they'd be shocking upward or or whether we were entering a recession because we had had that yield curve flattening that that went into what third quarter of um, nineteen, and so you know it's it's a completely different picture. We've had energy slip down to what two point five percent of the S and P five hundred, these record lows. So in a scenario where Say, say Biden becomes victorious, handily so. Okay, so Biden in a landslide, or, or or whatever the case may be, Democrats take the Senate, Democrats take the House, Green New Deal. Um, am I in a bear trap by being long energy, um, or is it just so down in the basement that that maybe maybe it doesn't even matter? Yeah, it, it, 
if I think if you were to ask people seven, eight years ago if the energy sector could be less than 3% of the market, I, I think you wouldn't get too many people <laughs> responding that's the case, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so, so yeah, I, I, I think there is a very real possibility that the energy sector um, does find some sort of footing here in terms of market cap. Uh, the, the challenge is that a lot of those companies are more focused on drilling um, than they are about profitability. Um, and so you could get a perverse um, reaction that is if if uh, the Democrats are pushing Green New Deal, then the focus may be more on, on profits and not drilling. And, and then you could see more consolidation in the sector that could lead to um, higher valuations and, and the sector actually doing um, a little bit better. Um, I think the other thing along those lines, though, and this could this could be something that could happen if you get strong, uh, you know, strong Democratic leadership uh, across the board is you could get an infrastructure bill passed. You know, both parties have talked about it, but they haven't been able to, to figure out a way to get it done. Um, but if you get an infrastructure bill through that leads to, you know, bridges and roads and airports being worked on, you know, that's going to help that entire cyclical part of the market, um, including energy uh, potentially. So that could be um, you know, one of the things uh, that could be positive for energy as well. Ed, when, when you when you guys create, you, you know, you have uh, you mentioned all these different charts and historical analysis and creating signals for, you know, helping investors navigate the markets uh, in, in terms of coming back to some of the global allocations and, and how you guys are positioned. You, you talk a little bit about neutral being in the U.S. and, and overweight emerging markets. Any any research or, or views that are supporting funding a emerging markets from the developed world, how, how you're looking at that? Um, yeah, well, I think that is really part, one of the early stages in this reopening trade. Obviously, emerging markets, some were hit particularly hard uh, from from COVID. Um, and so if you're looking to make some allocation globally, we, we'd focus more on EM than say, you know, developed international. So that was our thought process. You know, going to, uh, going to COVID and you just think about it's, it, it, you almost have to throw a dart at the map to see who was worst hit, right? I mean, the United States has hit, been hit hard, but also Peru and Brazil. And then you have the UK and Spain and Italy. You almost start to think that, um, the the plays coming out of this is that some of these countries have almost gotten to some degree of herd immunity and that you can reopen on account of maybe the vaccine doesn't even really matter anymore. I mean, I have reason to believe that York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, that they're kind of, this thing circulated so, so much already that maybe we don't necessarily even need the vaccine, although this administration is trying to promise one by November 1st. Um, maybe we don't even need it, right? Yeah, I guess that's something we're only knowing in hindsight, you know, what what is a herd immunity? You know, people talk about 85, 90% beginning. Now they're talking that maybe it's only 60%. We don't even know how many people have been exposed because of so many asymptomatic uh, people. Um, So uh, that, yeah, time time will tell. um, And we'll probably... Probably an idea, I would think, before the vaccine is widely distributed when the weather gets cooler in the Northeast. Um, but, yeah, we'll see if there really is a, a true second wave. I live in Florida, and, you know, we got the we got our wave in the summer. Um, maybe the economy is open too quickly, uh, maybe not. Uh, but, you know, when it gets hot down here, people stay indoors. So, you know, there could be some of that going on as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's going to be something that'll be interesting to see how that plays out vis-a-vis the, vis- the election. You know, if they're, if the economy is reopening, um, you know, Trump could probably, you know, use that to his advantage. Um, probably one of the more surprising stats in our report is that, um, when there has been a recession or a bear market, that's a 20% decline in the election year, the incumbent party is oh for the last six. You have to go back to Truman in 48 to and the incumbent party um, has won. Now, obviously, COVID has thrown all this um, into disarray. And I think the real question is, do people, you know, do voters blame Trump for the economy? And if the economy really improves by the election, he, he could probably make a strong case that you know, a lot of that was unforeseen in the beginning, but I'm the best person to navigate it going forward. 
Um, so that's probably a real big question over the next couple of months. Yeah, there's there's some statistics that there obviously be the people who are unemployed. We got some, you know, a, a positive number on, on the unemployment rate today, uh, but still, you know, fairly elevated versus history. But that there's some 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 statements about, you know, the average checking account with five thousand dollars or less is up something like 20 percent over last year, given all the sort of relief packages that we've done. Uh, and, and so maybe that is one of those positive offsets to, you know, all the disruption there. Yeah, you know, we talked about, um, I'm sure people have heard about all the alphabets, how you describe the, the economic recovery. Is it a V where things come back really quickly? Is it a, a U where it's very slow, a W, a double dip? Um, but the one I've heard lately, which I kind of like, is the K economy, where things went down right away, and then you have part of the economy doing very well and part of the economy doing, you know, still doing very poorly. And, um, you know, yeah, if you were lucky enough to still have, have a job, able to work from home or, or, or what have you, um, and, and, you know, either from less spending or you got, got a, a stimulus check, um, you're probably in the, in the best position you've been in in, in a few years. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic um, in this environment. Um, that some people, maybe they don't feel it right now, but one of the reasons why I think the, once we get through COVID, I think the economy could be in pretty good shape is that there is going to be pent up demand for spending. Um, and once people feel more comfortable doing it or feel like they can go out and spend it on things they want to spend, boy, there's going to be, there's going to be lots of people interested in eating at restaurants, taking vacations, um, you know, doing and, and taking advantage of creature comforts to make their lives easier. Yeah, I think we're we're looking at that also for 2021. Thinking that that's going to also be coming out there. Jeff, did you did you want to and jump what in there? What does look like on the other side of this? Is business travel ever coming back? I, well, you know, I've seen some stats saying it's going to be several years. Um, yeah, you know, I'll tell you. You know, we're we're doing we're not business traveling. I'm doing more more Zoom uh, conference calls uh, than ever, and uh, some of them are going to work just fine, but. I, I got to think we're, there's going to be some face-to-face meetings that have to take place, right? I think that the concern would be if, let's say, business travel is is smaller and a decent chunk smaller. Um, if your airlines, what what do you do? Well, that may mean that that for um, pleasure travelers, uh, the prices have to go up because that, you know, the business travelers are the ones that are less price sensitive. Um, so that's a that's a risk. But, yeah, I, I think business travel is going to come back to to a certain degree. Um, you know, there's a there's a reason that people um, that people traveled, that people did what, um, you know, business gets done that way. And uh, I think once people get more comfortable again, I think it is going to happen. Is it is at the same level? I'm sure there's certain things that can get done without without you know, meeting face to face. This has been a really great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets today. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. It was great. We're, we're going to th- also thank our Jeff Winnegar, who's director of asset allocation at Wisdom Tree, our producer, Patty Hall, our, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Again, if you want to ask Professor Siegel a question, you can do ask Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L at wisdomtree.com. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.